how integrated the frontal lobe is, is what determines how well a person does in life, how they, how well they do in school. Are they able to have good friendships with intimacy? Are they able to have a romantic relationship? So it really determines their overall trajectory in life. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 370. Today we're talking about, is tech making your kids crazy, moody, and lazy with Dr. Victoria Dunkley. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence. Kids. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. If you haven't done so yet, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you've ever gotten any value from this podcast at all, please do me a favor. Go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Just helps the podcast grow more. It takes 30 seconds. And boy, do we appreciate it incredibly. In just a moment, I am going to be sitting down with Dr. Victoria Dunkley, an award-winning integrative child psychiatrist and internationally recognized expert on the impact of screen time on the developing brain. She was recently named one of America's top psychiatrists, and Dr. Dunkley and her work have been featured on CNN, Psychology Today, NBC Nightly News, NPR, and Good Morning America. She's the author of the groundbreaking book, Reset Your Child's Brain, now published in 11 languages. And listen, this is an important episode. You know, if you have a child that is consistently irritable, has attention issues or behavior problems, you might want to check, listen to this, and then check on how much screen time they have. Dr. Dunkley talks about how screen time affects developing brains, acting as a stimulant for kids. And we're going to learn about her intervention and how reducing screen time can radically help mental health disorders. Join me as I talk to Dr. Victoria Dunkley. The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. So, Victoria, I'm so happy to talk to you again. I'm excited to talk to you again because we are both going to be speakers at Parenthood, the Unconference in Abu Dhabi, which is so cool. I can't wait to see you there in person. But I'm so fascinated by what you have to say and and what you've been studying and learning. And we're going to get right into that. But you are, you know, you teach about this, this 
this interaction that we have and our, especially our children have between our screen time and mental health, what was the, what was it that drove you to be so fascinated by this subject? Um, it really started almost 20 years ago now. And it was when I first got out of my training and I was working with a lot of kids with trauma who were either, either had a history of um, neglect or abuse or both. And th- those kids were, went into fight or flight mode very easily, like a, a hair trigger response. And I noticed with those kids, if they played video games at all, because back then it was really mostly just video games that we worried about, that they would go into fight or flight very easily. They would be more anxious. Um, I would see kind of their frontal lobe functioning shut down. And conversely, I noticed when we took video games away altogether, not just cut down, but all t- you know took them away altogether, that they would get unstuck and start to make progress. So I started to implement this intervention of um, no video games, no screens for four weeks. And then I started to use it in my private practice too, where the kids didn't necessarily have a history of trauma, but they, they, they looked like they did. They, had, they were all in this state of hyperarousal. And, um, and then I started just sharing it with you know friends, family, family members, coworkers, and just different things, no matter what was going on with the kid, everything seemed to get better. So that's kind of how I got interested in it, because I realized if we focused on that issue first, then everything tended to get better no matter what was going on. So it's, it's interesting because, you, you know, you, you started out with the effects of what happened. You know, it, it, was, it started out as, in some ways as an experiment, right? Let's like see mm-hmm. if this helps. And then you were seeing these effects. And so you just started to see these effects then replicated through lots of different populations that were just suffering effects of, which, but they didn't even realize it probably at the time. Exactly. Yeah. And I think at the time, um, you know, we were working with kids that lived in the group home, so we could, we could actually manipulate their environment and track things. And so like the, one of the homes that took the video games out of the home, we noticed the behavior incidents dropped by 30% mm. in a month. And this was like the highest level of um, acute care in the, in the state. So we knew, I knew if it worked with like the most difficult kids, like it would probably work with other kids too. And the other population I was seeing at the time um, were kids with tics and Tourette syndrome. Mm. And, and same thing, like the parent would come in and say, oh, I, you know, he's, gets on the computer and he starts ticking and they would show me videos of the child having ticks while they were playing on the computer. And I was just, you know, like the obvious thing, (laughs) well, don't let him play on the computer. And so I, you know, um, started to kind of conceptualize what was going on. One was that they were having this hyper arousal effect, like going into that fight or flight mode and staying there. And then also that dopamine was being released because um, ticks are dopamine related phenomenon. So I knew that just like if you give a kid a stimulant, they can develop ticks. So I knew there was some, it was something to do with um, like the arousal system and also with dopamine. And that's, you know, now we have, there's a lot more research on all of these things. And we know that is exactly what's happening. But between those two things and they, um, you know, there's some overlap between those two phenomenon. Um, there's, and there's other things going on too, but those, those two things can kind of explain a lot of the, the variety of symptoms that we see. 
So what are these symptoms? What are the, what are the effects that you've seen that some, some of the negative effects, I guess, that screen time, mm-hmm. how it's affecting the body and the brain. And I don't want to say, and I, I hesitate almost to ask that question because I don't want people to feel bad or feel like you have to get rid of your smartphone right away. Right. Like we, we just want to, you know, I definitely believe like in the middle path, right? But we want to understand what's going on. What were the mm-hmm. things that, how, how are these kids suffering that, that changed that as this was kind of taken away in this fast? Yeah. So what we see, t- a very typical picture is that the child is irritable um, and they can't focus and they're disorganized. They might be unmotivated, having social issues, behavior issues, but it really does vary quite a bit, even between like the way boys and girls present. Girls might be more anxious and boys might act out more. But because of that dopamine um, effect, we even see things like kids are becoming psychotic, like they'll start hearing voices or they'll become paranoid. And obviously everyone's very alarmed when something like that happens and they start you know, throwing around schizophrenia or using antipsychotic drugs. And then, and really when you just take away the screen stimulation that goes away. Um, So there's really a lot, you know, and and then also obsessive compulsive disorder. That was another kind of really specific thing that used to be, you know, relatively uncommon. And we're seeing that a lot now. It's one of the strongest associations between screen time is is OCD-like behavior. Mm -hmm. And when you just talk to random parents, um, a lot of parents, you know, their kids aren't in treatment necessarily, but a lot of parents do report that their kids are very obsessive or counting things or, um, you know, needing to do things in a certain way, just kind of obsessive compulsive behavior that I feel is related to screen time, especially from the pandemic. So I always tell parents, like, I, I don't want to stress anybody out. Um, I just want to provide information that could provide a possible solution to, you know, whatever is going on with someone's child. And that there's a way to do things in a certain order to kind of reset the nervous system and then figure out how much screen time a child can tolerate. All right. So the screen time is, what I'm gathering is that the screen time is acting like a stimulant. Like, uh, yes. And so it's it's giving the child energy. Yet they're sitting still, right? And Exactly. And so this, in some ways, like this energy has to go somewhere. So it's going into irritability. It's going into OCD. It may go into... What else? I mean, how does it affect that's mood exactly or right. behavior yes. and social skills, right? Like we have a lot of, and would this be something that would affect ADHD? Because I imagine there's like hyperactive, right? Like that's energy that's going into those kids. Right. Exactly right. So it is like trapped energy. So you're getting, you're, you're getting this fight or flight mode that's being triggered and then it's combined with being sedentary. So the normal reaction when you get when you have fight fight or flight is that you're either fighting or running away. There's a big discharge of physical energy. Or freeze. But now, though, right? Freeze is one. Or freeze. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So freeze. You, you know, obviously they're frozen. They're not. Um, you know, it's another survival mechanism. Um, but you know, if you're in, if you're frozen all the time, that energy is not being discharged either. Okay. Yeah. But. But typically, if we just look at fight or flight, you know, it's, the energy should be discharged. You're in some kind of situation. Or even if you freeze, like you tend to run away after that and, you know, mm-hmm. so that you're all ready to survive. Um, so the energy is getting trapped. And that, that's exactly a perfect way to put it is that it's trapped and there's no way to discharge it. So 
And we know that even if kids are getting exercise, um, obviously that helps. But if they're if they're still sedentary with this combination of fight or flight and being sedentary at the same time, you do see some of this trapped energy. So some kids, it comes out as movements like tics, or they're just very restless or more hyper or impulsive. Other kids, um, because the hyperarousal kind of shuts down the frontal lobe, they can't focus. Um, and also because they their nervous system has been bombarded by all this artificial stimulation, that kind of depletes your your mental reserves. Um, so kids, you know, even kids that don't have ADHD might look like they have ADHD. Um, so kids really do present in different ways. Other kids might, when they get that trapped energy, they might physically act out. Um, they might be hitting more or using, you know, running, using their body, running into other kids more, things like that, because they're, they're literally trying to discharge that energy. So it does present in different ways. Um, other kids have rages. Other kids are just highly anxious and they might withdraw, but it's all kind of a reaction to this bombardment of the nervous system. Wow. Okay. So I imagine the listener, you you may be thinking, oh, like this thing, my child is dealing with this thing my child is dealing with. I see my neighbor's child is dealing with this. Like this is, these are a lot of symptoms that are, a lot of kids are dealing with, um, across the board is this kind of is the are these things that have like increased as screen time has increased over time is that something you can that the, there have been studies about yes absolutely we know that it, i mean even even before the pandemic we know that um depression and anxiety rates were had been had increased about 20 percent um across the board in children we already were in the midst of a mental health crisis before the pandemic and then since the pandemic, and, and we know those those things were also related to screen time. So the more screen time someone has, the more likely they are to have some kind of uh, mental health issue or developmental um, delay, things like that. So we already knew there was an association. And then the, the pandemic only um, buttresses this argument. So we know that the kids that had the most screen time over during the pandemic had the most weight gain, have the most issues with learning in school. Um, and have more mood and anxiety issues. Honestly, I could actually see that with my own child. Like in my my twelve year old, who did not adjust to online learning well at all, and would sit in the corner. We didn't want her to sit in the corner. She was watching a lot of YouTube. We we knew this. You know, it was like we wanted to get her off. We had to turn. You know, it was just. And she was struggling with anxiety, and she was struggling with, you know. A, a lot of the things you you listed there. I mean, I could see all of that happening, um, mm-hmm. and it has all improved since going back to school in person and having a, a more balanced schedule. It's amazing. Yeah. But for some some kids, obviously, it's like kids are being sent to you, a child psychologist. They're being sent to other child psych- psychologists to to get, um, you know, maybe to get treatment or, or drugs to help mm-hmm. with this kind of thing. But you're, you advise, and you talk about it in your book, the reset your brain, a digital fast. So tell us, tell us about this and how, how you, you talked about how it kind of came about, but how, how does that work? What, what goes on with the digital fast? You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too good to be true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job. Congratulations. You're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. 
I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch, and I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com mindful for 25% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So basically, you know, we want to make sure the parent is on board. So they have to be kind of, they don't have to be convinced that this, that screen time is going to, is the cause of all these issues or that removing is going to, you know, solve all their problems, but they just have to be convinced enough that it's worth trying. So if they kind of understand um, the hyperarousal effects, the effects on dopamine, the effects on sleep. Um, this trapped energy concept, if they, when they kind of, and then they can tie it into what they're seeing with their child, then they kind of understand enough to be like, okay, I know this might seem hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so we, we, what we do is we make a very specific plan. We, we figure out a start date. Um, we do like a screen sweep so that removing all the unnecessary devices in the home, in the car, you know, you have to kind of think through the child's day, where they're going to go. Are they going to the sitter? Are they going to the aunt's house? Um, and just, you know, do you have to deal with school? All those things. And then we plan out what this child's schedule will, will be. So part of the um, plan, especially during the first week, is to structure everything, but also to spend time together. So we want to make sure that there's one-on-one time because you're actually um, competing with the bonding tracks are competing with the the tracks, the um, addiction or reward pathways that are hijacked by screens. Oh, so you're yeah. actually kind of rewiring the brain. And the more that you, the, bo- the stronger the bonding is, 
the more protected the child is for tech addiction in general and other addictions too. So we talk about, you know, not just family time, but one-on-one time is really important for the eye contact, um, regulating the nervous system, help, and also helping children not feel lost because they really kind of feel like this existential angst, if, especially, you know, preteens and teenagers if they don't have their phone. So we have to make sure that they um, feel that connection to the parent. So, but really just the first week, you have to really plan out kind of day by day, hour by hour. Um, and then, but then after that, they, because they're not tethered to screens anymore, they naturally start to self-initiate play. They start doing more creative things. They start going outside on their own. You can see them like visibly more relaxed. They're in a better mood. They talk more. They're smiling more. So really, even with teenagers, by the second week, you start to see a big difference. And then we just, you know, we do it for at least four weeks. Um, some kids, it's even longer. Um, for example, if they're really, you know, really addicted or the depression's super um, severe or the child's on the spectrum. So, you know, sometimes we do it longer and then we see how it goes. We want to make sure their system is reset and, the, and we track certain things like, you know, are they sleeping through, are they sleeping longer through the night? Are they getting their homework done faster? So we try to track something that's objective um, and, and see how they're feeling. And then from there, we, you know, we can, you can try to reintroduce if that's what you want to do in very small amounts. And then we keep tracking things to make sure the child doesn't fall off track. Wow. So I imagine that people have a, a, a lot of their, they have a lot of a hard time with this, but I, what I'm kind of hearing is that you're getting to like, you want to see what is the child's mood? Like, what is their behavior? Like, are, are they having all these issues without the screen time? Right. Like you're kind of seeing, yeah. okay, <laughs> is this something that will help? I mean, do you, you do you find their you know, there must be kids, of course, that have issues, you know, even when you get to that baseline that you may want to treat and help. But uh, I guess, I don't know. I mean, what do you see as far as in your practice, as far as people having that, this reset be a a solution for them or, you know, how many, I guess. I'm kind of curious about the percentage. About how many, you mean respond to it or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I mean, it's, Virtually everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't, it's it's usually because something's gotten missed. You know, there's mm. they have a device under their bed or an old laptop or an old phone or something like that, or they're you, you know using a friend's phone or something like that. So so we do troubleshooting to see if something got missed, um, and then sometimes there's another addiction going on. Like with teenagers, sometimes they're you know say they're smoking pot or something like that, and so there's still like a significant, um, something that something's in place that's really bothering them. Mm-hmm. But even most, I mean, I would say at least 80% of the time, they're going to get at least 50% better. And then you could see what's left, you know, mm-hmm. you know, is there other issues going on at school? Um, of course there can still be some depression, anxiety, things like that, but you just see such a huge improvement mm-hmm. that I always start with it. And I always try to talk parents into it and I always revisit it. And sometimes it might take parents, you know, two years before they're ready to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's just such a worthwhile intervention um, that I just always, you know, revisit. And sometimes people will do the fast and then they'll go a year or so and then they'll, they're like, hey, we're off track again and we're seeing all the same things again. And then they do another fast. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's kind of like um, every every family has kind of a learning curve. And, you know, a lot of times the screens come in too soon, too much and too soon. 
And then we just have to kind of adjust. So sometimes parents say like the fast was the easy part and, you know, living afterwards is, is harder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you reintegrate into daily life? I'm curious about with teens, what about connection, that connection with their peers, right? With the, mm-hmm. you know, that, that social connection. Because I know they, like when I was a teen, you could go to the park and there were, might be other people there. You could call people on the phone uh, and not get sidetracked into whatever. But like right now, like my, I know my daughters communicate via text. Like that's how they mm-hmm. communicate is via text. Or my friend, my one daughter, her best friend is a half an hour away. So they play Minecraft together and they're talking on the phone like while they do that. But So what about that social connection for teens? Isn't that an important piece? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why parents are, have a hard time doing it because of that exact reason. But what we see when, when kids, when, you know, families are actually finally do it is they, they work around it in some way. Like I've seen some teens, you know, start calling each other on the phone. Um, I've, I've had other families just say, Hey, this is what we're doing. You have to text my mom if you want us to set up something. So they still end up like setting up social activities but they're de- but not they're not texting they're not on social media, um, and then inevitably, and also you know if the parent is spending time with the teen during that if the parent is absent it's not going to work you know mm. the teen's just going to rebel and the parent if if the parent commits to doing it too, that helps the teen feel like you know this they're you're doing it as a family unit and everyone's in this together, um, but inevitably the teen feels some kind of relief. Because especially with social media, like there's so much um, pressure just to keep up and like mm-hmm. figure out what everyone's doing and tracking your likes and posting and streaks and, you know, all that stuff and all that, you know, they're forced, it's, they're forced to have it be gone. And they, and then they say, wow, I feel so much better. And, you know, and then, and they feel like because the parent took it away, they don't feel, you know, that's like an acceptable reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> socially to like not have their phone or, or whatever. So I think, um, and, and also if you kind of frame it as let's do this for four weeks and see what happens. I know it's going to be hard. You're going to feel anxious, but I'm going to, we're going to get through it together. And these are the things that we can do as fun things to kind of offset, like how, you know, how you're feeling right now. Um, and it's good for the teen to kind of the child or the teen to brainstorm with the, mm-hmm. with the parents about what they can do. Like, you know, do they want to go to a baseball game? Do they want to do this thing? And just try to think of things that can be done together that may maybe are getting not done because everyone's so busy. Um, so there's ways to work around it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's definitely harder to convince a family with a teenager to do this. I think the people who end up doing it, they, they're really seeing their child um, suffering, like either a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. So they're more motivated. Okay. And, or, you know, maybe their kids are younger and they have more. The younger ones is definitely easier. More more easily. Like, this is what we're doing, right? Exactly. Yes. That would would not fly in my house. What is, um, so then let's think about the idea of like, let's imagine like we've gone through this fast and things like that, but what about then living afterwards, right? Or mm-hmm. what about if you have a young child and you kind of want to, you want to avoid this, like having to kind of go through this difficulty and having all these negative effects maybe in the first place. I'm curious about that piece of like, well, how do we live comfortably with this, right? Like 
I can see, you know, a, a lot of us maybe taking a month or two to to fast, and I would love that, and I imagine I would enjoy that a lot, actually. But then I'd want to, you know, watch some movies, and, and I want to, I'd want to see the the new, you know, Game of Thrones show, <laughs> and um, I don't know, you know, there there might be some, you know. The, might you know a, a child might want to reconnect with their friends on doing something like Minecraft or something like that. So, what what are the maybe what are the kinds of you talk a little bit about the different kinds of content and how they have effects, but um, maybe we could talk about that. Like what what are some of the what are some of the healthier ways? Are there healthy ways to have? kids and screen time mix or are they all doomed to to be irritable and adhd and depressed if if we're letting them you know have screen time yeah it's a million dollar question um <laughs> i think you know some people say like you look at the three c's like are they just um consuming are they creating or they or are they connecting so obviously they're creating and connecting with others um people view and there's some research showing that it's it's not as um, problematic, shall we say? Mm -hmm. um, but it it really depends on what's going on with, on with the child. So if a child is you know connecting um, or playing Minecraft, let's say, um, I have many kids in my practice. Minecraft is one of the most addictive games. So I probably have more Minecraft addicts in my practice than any other game. Um, because it's insidious and it kind of sneaks up on you and parents think it's harmless. Um, so I think all of those things can still be addictive. Or I have another, uh, an, another young adult who's, um, he's writing a novel and he's been writing it for years, but he's also completely socially isolated. And so if you just hear like, oh, he's writing a novel, that's he's creating, he's creating something that sounds healthy. Um, but then when you look at the way his life is and the dysfunction that's going on, you can see it's still a problem. And if he got away from that, he probably would be forced to socialize. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on what's going on with the individual child and um, not just what they're doing, but how much. I, to me, how much they're doing mm -hmm. is a bigger factor. Like um, it's a bigger factor in terms of predicting tech addiction down the line. So we know that tech addiction is related to daily screen time and also lifetime screen time. So the earlier it's introduced, that's why screens in school is like a big thorn in my side. The earlier it's introduced, the more likely they are to get addicted later. Um, mm. And also just obviously like just a time factor, you know, the more that they're on their screens, the less time they have for exercise and sports and music and face-to-face -face socializing, things like that. So I think to me, I, I look at more how much time they're doing it and um, if they have a phone, things like that. When kids get, there's the two devices that I see where things take a turn or when an iPad comes into a home because it's so easy and you can throw it in your purse and the kid can walk around with it and everything. Um, and then and there's all these apps and stuff that parents think are educational um, the iPad coming into the home and then a, a, a child getting a smartphone. Mm -hmm. So if you were like to kind of do a timeline, those are the two things that we see, you know, can cause a problem and maybe not right away, but if you look six months, a year down the line and then, you know, there's an issue. 
I mean, I could see that, um, you know, we have a neighbors that we um, carpool with to the bus stop. And my daughter's 12. She doesn't have a phone, but their son's like eight or something and has a smartphone, has a smartphone. And, you know, he's like playing video games, like while standing in the car or standing at the bus stop. And, you know, not there's a time that would have been maybe a social time. Maybe right. it's socially awkward, but then it's so weird because as parents, like, what are we modeling too? Like I, I, <laughs> I got really frustrated one day when I went to pick up at the bus stop and I was running late and it's, we have to drive to this kind of, you know, uh, bus stop and, and all the parents are in their own cars by themselves, probably looking at their phones. And I'm just so frustrated. Like, what are we modeling for our kids that we can't, it's like too awkward to have awkward conversation with other parents in your school that you'd rather like, I talk to that, you know, I don't know. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, that's definitely, yeah, it, it's, that's, it, it's a huge issue. And I think, you know, when we, when parents start suggesting we're going to do a screen fast with their kids, immediately the kids are like, well, what about you? You know, you're on your phone all the time. Dad's on the computer all the time or whatever. Um, so those things definitely do matter. And then, but I, it's, so it's really important for parents to say, I know I need to work on it too, and not get defensive and say, cause every parent says I'm, I'm working, you know, I'm doing mm. this for work or I'm doing something for you or whatever. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's about like creating habits so that you're not on a device when you're in your child's presence, ideally ever, but mm. you know, at least for, for certain times that you block off and you consider that time sacred. Mm. Um, Modeling definitely helps, but I think like the situation you were talking about, like, I think it's okay to say like, okay, with this in my car, we're not going to be, there's no devices in my car. That's the rule in my car. And you guys just need to talk, you know? And so I think, (laughs) (laughs) and I think um, just hearing from parents and, you know, friends who have teenagers and stuff, I feel like it's getting a little bit more acceptable to kind of be that parent to put that puts their foot down and says, well, this is what we're doing. And I don't think other parents are, um, I think other parents are welcoming it more. Like they, they're like, oh, that's great. You know, I agree with that. Of course, there still might be parents that take offense or something, but I just think um, even though everything's, you know, it's more entrenched than ever. I also feel like there's a growing swell of parents who are, um, you know, having those kind of limits or saying, oh, when we, when we do play dates, we're not using any phones or we're not gaming, we're not gaming today or whatever. You know, I do think there's more parents are doing that. And I also think there's more parents who are um, really delaying giving their kids a smartphone. And I'm seeing kids here in LA that um, are just getting a flip phone or a dumb phone and that's it. And they just, and then all the other moms are like, I'm going to do that too. So I am seeing those kind of trends go on. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's hope, I I would say. (laughs) So, dear listener, we can be trendsetters. I mean, I think those limits that that Dr. Dunkley is suggesting are so are, are maybe great ones that, you know, you and I can do together. Like in this play day, we're not having electronics and in this car, <laughs> that's going to be my, uh, my next drive in this car. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we don't use, uh, use phones while we're, you know, play phone games while we're driving or whatever it is. And, um, and I've, I've done that, like even with, uh, 
the teens, uh, there were a bunch of kids when my daughter was, I guess she was still 15 or 14. They, I took all the, these, all this group of girls to go thrifting and we had this great time. They came back, we're going to get snacks and I'm just in the kitchen. I'm hearing them in the living room. And, and then I, they're all like on their phones. They all got out their phones and then we're like showing each other things. So they're kind of being social on their phones a little bit, but I, I had to come in and be like, listen, you guys are here in real life together. Why don't you guys like do something together? You know, like, and then they did, they put down the phones yeah. and they played clue or something like that. Like they, Aww. they did have a good time, but it, it wasn't their first, like their first instinct was like, Oh, mm-hmm. we're having a, t- a moment of downtime. So this is what we mm-hmm. do. Right. Yes. And I think the default mode is to go to their phone for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So I think when you do have to set that limit, and I feel like the kids are often receptive, you know, yeah, they were. I feel like at some level, they know what's going on too. At some level, they know what's going on with their own body. Mm. Um, I, you know, of course they're going to push back and, the, you know, kids who are really addicted are really going to be defensive about it. But even those kids at some level, they know. So I always think that when you say that to them, you're, you know, when you make that limit with the kids at some level, they're grateful and they're saying, thank you. And then, and they know that they have fun afterwards and they can kind of reflect on it and say, yeah, that was nice to just not have our phones and do that. Okay. So I want to play devil's advocate here a little bit because some people are listening and are like, yes, this sounds amazing. But what about, I mean, I remember when my daughter was really young, like two and a half, I was like, she should not have any screen time at all. My husband was like, well, she, this is a technological world. She should be tech savvy to do some things. And there are some things you can learn from and things like that. So what about that idea that, you know, kids who are, have, you know, have, may have limited exposure to electronics, to games. And there, there were some things that I thought were kind of neat and some things I didn't think were so neat, but, um, what about that argument that those kids are going to be left behind? Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. 
All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Great question. Um, so first of all, I've never seen a kid who wasn't tech savvy, even if they were kept away from smartphones and, you know, social media and gaming and everything. The minute they got a smartphone, they immediately knew how to use it. I just think it's impossible to not have some exposure, especially with school. So I really don't see that happening. And also, let's just say, um, you know, hypothetically, if a child had no screen exposure, that all the technology is is really supposed to be like dummy proof. It's supposed to be intuitive, easy to learn. And, you know, people always say, oh, older people can't learn it. But I have seen older people, you know, adapt to a technology too. And a young person adapts very, very quickly. They can learn it very fast. Um, so it's it's much more important to have the frontal lobe working optimally because the fr like frontal lobe health and the, how integrated the frontal lobe is, is what determines how well a person does in life, how they, how well they do in school. Are they able to have um, good friendships with intimacy? Are they able to have a romantic relationship? Um, so it really determines their, their overall trajectory in life. So even in theory, if they did fall behind in the, in the tech arena, you, you, you want to put your money where the frontal lobe is. And the best way to keep the frontal lobe, um, the, the most resilience, the most resilient and the most integrated is, is by minimizing screen exposure as much as possible. So, and that includes, you know, and we have a lot of, um, you know, like we know that a lot of the Silicon Valley families send their kids to low tech schools and they may end up in a tech field. And we, I see that here in Los Angeles too. Like there's a, a Waldorf school here, here that um, it's actually a public school and they, you know, they don't have any technology until age 12. And those kids, a lot of those kids, when they track where they end up, you know, some of them do end up in the, in the tech world. So there's just, it's, it's, it's more important that the brain functions optimally than to teach, you know, shove things down their throat as soon as they can learn them. Because just because a kid can learn something at a certain age doesn't mean they should. You know, a 12-year-old could drive a car, but we don't let them because they have poor impulse control, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that from my 14-year-old friend who drove her car. <laughs> okay, but what about, again, devil's advocate, what about there are positive findings for video games, right? Like there are studies that show that they can help with coordination and attention, right? And what about that piece? Okay, so if you really look at the research, um, like playing video games teaches you how to play video games. So you might be better when they test the person, they might be better at eye-hand coordination on a screen but their eye hand, but it doesn't translate to real life. So it doesn't mean they could catch a baseball or, you know, move around on a tennis court 
better than a child who was actually doing those things. Mm. Um, so they always point to this one study about, um, and by the way, all these eye-hand coordination studies are that the research itself is done on a screen. Huh. So, um, but they always point to this one study about surgeons who played video games are better surgeons because they're looking through at a screen. Well, those surgeons, I guarantee you, they did not grow up playing video games at the same rate that we have now. And a cer- you know, someone who gets through medical school and, and then goes into surgery is going to have a pretty well-integrated frontal lobe. You can't make it all the way through that without having a high-functioning frontal lobe. So to, to point to surgeons and say, and extrapolate it to the rest of the population is not, it's not good science. Mm. Um, and the other thing was, is focus. Well, the, when they look at the focus studies, they're, they're comparing video game, regular video games um, to these other video games. They're not comparing, I wish they would compare it to being screen-free altogether. Mm. Um, so when they say that it, it helps attention, like there's a new, uh, I think it's approved for the treatment of ADHD. When you look at the research for how that, that treatment got approved, they were comparing it to other video games and showing this child's attention was better and their impulse control was better compared to playing this other game. So that's all they had to prove with it, that it was superior to playing another video game. Okay. All right. So knowing all this. And ask if you, sorry, sorry, but if you ask any, (laughs) ask any teacher, one of the reasons, one of the things um, when I first got into this was also because I happened to have a lot of teachers in my, um, you know, patients whose parents were teachers mm-hmm. and they all were saying the same thing. Like in the classroom, they could pick out who played video games and who didn't. And like the kids who played video games were just spacey. They weren't getting their work done and they could just, without even looking at their work, they could just go through the room and say, he plays, he plays, she plays. They could tell. So the, the attention thing, we know there's a lot more research. There's a mountain of research showing that gaming and screen time in general fractures attention even, you know, within, and some of the research shows that within 11 or 12 minutes, the attention is already worse. Wow. So, yeah. So the, the, you know, the advocates of gaming and things like that, they'll always point to this. There's only like a couple of researchers that everybody quotes for the attention piece and the eye-hand coordination. And then the other 95% of the research is showing the exact opposite. Okay. All right. So, Knowing all this, right, knowing that it's affecting the brain, it's affecting the body, it's affecting behavior. So knowing that screen time is having this incredible negative effect on brain, body, behavior, it's lending to psychiatric issues. You have a young son, right? Like, do you, how is this shifting and changing all this knowledge? What are you doing to, to, to limit his screen time and also have him be part of the world? (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, I think what I'm actually doing now is I, I'm stricter than I even thought I was going to be um, because my son is sensitive. So he mm. um, he's sensitive even to like toys that have buttons. So I started to just realize that anything that was artificial, he, it made him dysregulated. Hmm. Um, if he was in the natural world and he was outside and he had toys that made him, you know, think and move and create he's like a different child. So, 
you know, he's, he doesn't have any screen time on a, any kind of regular basis. You know, mm-hmm. once in a while he gets to watch sports with his dad or um, a documentary. I'll let him watch 10 or 20 minutes here and there, but it's very little. And even during the pandemic, I noticed um, with Zoom, he would like press his body back against me or he'd fall on the floor. And I was hearing the same thing from parents. Like they would say, like, my child starts rolling on the floor. And I feel like that's because they're trying to, they are feeling bombarded and they're trying to like ground themselves, like literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know other families, you know, even at a young age, they can do FaceTime. And my son, I could tell he's, as he's getting a little bit older, he can do some FaceTime without losing his mind. <laughs> How old is but, he? But um, he's five now. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of, and I, you know, I just, everybody around me kind of knows like what I do and and a lot of parents are really open to talk. I don't talk about it. I let other people bring it up to me, but a lot of parents are curious about it. And then they, they see things in their own home. And so, you know, they ask about it. And then in terms of school, um, my son is in a public school, but we, we did a lot of touring and researching and, um, and we picked a school that had very, that has no screen time, at least until the upper grades. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's a steam school, but they just, they, they do things a little bit differently. So they want everything. It's a constructivist approach. So they want everything very hands-on and they let the kids move around and they're outside a lot and things like that. Um, so, yeah. but I could see, you know, most of the schools we toured, it was devices even in kindergarten. So it's, Which it's is- depressing. It is depressing. I mean, in kindergarten, they should be, I hate playing, they should be playing dress up (laughs) and playing outside in kindergarten. Yes. And even in first to second grade, like there's a a really good school district that's a couple of miles from here that we planned to go to until I saw what was going on. But the second graders there were saying um, a week at, in second grade, they were getting an hour a day on a Chromebook or, you know, I think it was Chromebook or iPad or both. And, um, and I remember the little girl saying, you know, that she hated it and she felt like it, whatever they were, whatever apps they were using, she felt like were stupid. And, and, um, and the mom said, well, an hour is not very much. And I, and I thought, yes, it is. (laughs) Especially when you start multiplying all those hours and adding them up, you know, that's all time that could be spent moving or, you know, doing what we know helps development, you know, Mm -hmm. just like I was saying earlier, just because they can get on, you know, log on and use an app and, click away doesn't mean they should be doing it. It doesn't mean it's that that is superior to having a human being interaction or even just playing during that time. Yeah. I mean, I guess teaching wise, like in schools, you know, it's easier if all the kids are sort of typing and submitting their things like that, right? Like it's easier from the teacher's Mm -hmm. point of view to, to scan and read and all of those things. But it's kind of an experiment, I guess, that we've been mm-hmm. doing for the last maybe 10 years or so, like on kids, where we adults are making this assumption that it's equivalent. But right. you're saying that it's really, really not equivalent and there's right. dangers. Yes. And the ed tech companies are saying that it's equivalent or superior even. And, and you know, there's, a, there's entire organizations that focus on this one topic. Um, but I think, you know, then the school spends money on it. And then if, even if they see it's not working, of course they, they want to make it work, you know? Um, so it's, it's, 
it's a problem. Even at the, even at my son's school, at the beginning of school, they were, they, you know, I walked, I walked him to his class one day and they were showing the kids a video, a YouTube video about, I forget what the name of it, but some of the other kids knew what it was, but it was, you know, alphabet and numbers coming up on the screen. And I was like, why are they doing that? Like the kids could just be, you know, the teacher was like, well, it's just a chaotic time. And I'm trying to like handle all these kids. And, and I, and it turned out like all the classes were doing it, but a bunch of the parents were like, wait, why are you, why are you showing that video? Like, you know, most of the parents were just saying like, what's the purpose of that? But I think because enough parents asked about it, they stopped doing it. Hmm. So that was like a good, um, cause I, I'm always telling parents, like always use your voice. If you think something's going on at school and if, if other, if a group of parents says something together, that helps too. Um, cause there's a lot of excessive stuff going on in schools that they could get rid of too. It's not just, you know, doing their work on the laptop. Like there's sometimes they're rewarding kids with iPad time or letting them, you know, um, get on their phone if they get their work done or, you know, things like that, that, or they're showing videos unnecessarily. Like there's just a lot going on in the schools that could be done, done away with. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's so normalized in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's hard to, I think it's hard to kind of walk the middle path with this. I mean, I guess from my own point of view, like I feel really good about the limits I set for my kids when they were younger. You know, I feel like that shaped a pattern, you know, and it's much Mm -hmm. harder to kind of go backwards than it is to go, you know, than to restrict as kids we're older, like we set some things in patterns, like this listener knows I we've done a screen-free Sunday forever and ever and ever, right? So we have kind of a reset day and, you know, we have limits on time and, and all those things. But then now, but it's interesting now because with my daughters being 15 and 12, we're giving them more freedom for them to like feel what works, you know, what works for them. And I think I, maybe we gave my oldest one a smartphone too soon, but at the same time, maybe she's a unique kid. I mean, she actually had TikTok on her phone for a little while. And so my husband got it for a little while to experience it. He felt like it was breaking his brain, but then (laughs) she took it off. She didn't like how it felt. She didn't like how it felt and she took it off her phone. So who knows, maybe the idea, you know, the just having these discussions or having it be in, you know, I'm, I, I try to be, they, they think I'm like ridiculously anti-screen, but I mean, the truth is that I try to be mm-hmm. open to, you know, and curious and not, so we can have the conversations about what's going on. So I don't know. It's, yeah. I think it's a hard path to walk as they it get really older is. because it's a very messy path, right? Cause yes. some kids have a phone at eight and, you know, and then you know, some kids mm-hmm. don't, and some people, some kids were raised in a stroller watching an iPad, and some yeah. kids are like, you know, uh, homeschooled and have been in the forest all their lives. Like, who knows, you know? I know. But I think, you know, sometimes I hear, I get emails from people, and they, um, you know, I get an email when their kid was in high school and, the, and was not doing well, and then and then they email me again, like years later and the kids in college. And I always say like, what do you think made the difference? Because the kid, you know, got addicted and then came back out the other side. Mm. And um, a lot of them say talking about it till I wanted to beat my head against the wall. <laughs> like they just talked about it over and over and over. It's kind of like, 
um, mm-hmm. you know, alcohol and drug use, like you, you do have to keep having those conversations and it does make a difference. We know that research shows it does make a difference to keep talking about it. And also what you were saying about like how your daughter like was able to reflect on how she felt and then made a change that in itself is a sign of a good um, functioning frontal lobe. Hmm. So, but that is also the same thing that somebody wouldn't, a child might not have if they're in a state of hyperarousal yeah. um, or they're just maybe have other struggles in general, like if they have ADHD or something. Um, so that's like a, you know, the, the ability to reflect and then look ahead and think about what, how you feel, how your body feels, and then make a change. All of that is frontal lobe stuff. So obviously, ideally, we, we want kids to be able to do that, um, but not every kid will be able to. So that's why sometimes, you know, when parents say, well, you know, they're teenagers, they have to make some decisions. And I just say, you know, if your child was doing drugs, you wouldn't let them make a decision. You would like step in there and say, hey, this is not good for you. I'm going to take over right now. So I think we, you know, we do have to, it is different from drugs because we obviously use it in an everyday way. Um, but it is, it is like drugs because it does cause addiction. And we know from brain imaging studies that it causes very similar damage to drug and alcohol use. And it causes damage in the frontal lobe and it causes the connections um, to be more spotty and it, it thins the cortex, like all this atrophy happens, you know, so it's very, it's, it's, it's a real thing. So we have to be really careful. And I always, you know, even with young adults, sometimes I have the parent just say, look, you're still living in my house. Um, this is what's going to happen. If you want to stay, live, if you want to continue to live here, we're going to do this fast. And then, and this is all the things you have to do to live here, you know? So I think um, we have to kind of realize that their brains are not yet ready to, to manage these things. It's, it's unrealistic. And plus there's like a whole industry of, you know, there's a whole, um, like departments of engineers who are designing these things to be addictive. So it's not Mm -hmm. just like the, it's like the devices themselves. Um, and they, they constantly want the user coming back. Um, so early on it might be, you know, you might get on TikTok and say, Oh, this doesn't feel good. But if they, it, it can be insidious, like they might like it at, at first and just do it here and there. And then after a while, they can't get themselves away because they're hooked. That's that attention economy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is really important. I'm so glad you've come on to talk about this. And in fact, actually, I feel like kind of, I feel hopeful because like there's so many things that this simple side effect free Maybe not so simple, but in some ways, very simple side effect free intervention that can happen like almost right away can have incredible effects. I mean, I think that's very, very hopeful for a lot of Mm -hmm. parents who, you know, may have kids suffering from, you know, lack of focus and and behavior issues and irritability and OCD and all of those things that you listed that that can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I appreciate it so much. Victoria Dunkley's book is Reset Your Brain. And where can people find out about you and what you're doing and continue the conversation if they want to? Um, well, it's, it's just to clarify, it's Reset Your Child's Brain. Oh, sorry. Thank and, you. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, and my website is drdunkley.com. And there's um, a free email course at Dr. Dunkley 
facebook.com slash video games. And I also have a blog on psychology today called Mental Wealth. And there's like 50 articles that have to do with screen time on there. So that's also a big, um, can serve as a big resource for people for different things like ticks or, you know, mood instability, things like that. Again, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to seeing you in person and, and it's been really just so lovely to talk. Thank you. That was a great talk today. Thanks, Hunter. What an eye-opening episode this is. I'm so excited to share this really important work. But listen, if it has scared the bejesus out of you, don't worry. They're not all... The news on tech and screens is bad. We have some guests coming up soon. We're going to talk about some research that gives some nuance into some of the actually the positive effects of screen time. So there is a lot to learn out there. Stick with the podcast. We are going to bring it to you because this is such an important issue these days. So I hope this has helped you. I hope you can share it with people in your life who can benefit. I know I will be, and I'm wishing you a great week, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.